Before we dive into the second chapter of Haggai this morning, it'll be beneficial for us to review chapter 1. Haggai brought the first prophecy from God to his people after their return from exile in Babylon. Haggai prophesied nearly 20 years after the people had returned to Jerusalem with a commission from King Cyrus to rebuild the temple. When the people first arrived in Jerusalem, they were excited to rebuild the temple. But that excitement faded as they faced opposition. And eventually the priority of rebuilding the temple fell by the wayside. By not rebuilding the temple, the people were in effect saying that it was okay not to have God in their presence, with them, even though the people had moved back into the land God promised them, their hearts were still far away from God. God used Haggai to challenge the people's priorities because they were busy building their own houses while they left the temple in ruins. As a result of deprioritizing God, they were living joyless lives where nothing they spent their energy on brought any satisfaction. God called his people to reflect on how their attitude toward rebuilding the temple impacted the way that their lives were going. God sent Haggai to challenge the people's priorities because they were Oops, God sent Haggai to correct the people and call them to obedience. God ruined their harvest and frustrated all the work of their hands to turn them back to himself. In response to God's correction, the people obeyed God. But they were afraid because they'd sinned against God. In response to their fear, God sent a message through Haggai to reassure his people. God told them, I am with you. Haggai assured them that God was present with them, even though they had sinned against him. God then roused Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest, and the remnant of the people to begin rebuilding the temple. As they reset their priorities to put God first by rebuilding the temple, God provided them the strength to obey him. Only 23 days after God sent Haggai to Zerubbabel, Joshua and all the people to call them out on their sin of not rebuilding the temple, the rebuilding effort is underway. A day of hope is dawning in Israel because God's people are responding in obedience to God's word delivered through God's prophet. The people of Israel whose continued sin had previously resulted in the destruction of the temple and in exile were now rebuilding the temple with God's help and approval. That's a quick recap of chapter 1 of Haggai. As we turn to chapter 2, it's a time of renewed hope for the people of Israel. God is with them. They're carrying out his instruction to rebuild the temple. But that hope hits up against some hard realities, and the wind comes out of their sails. The temple they're rebuilding doesn't compare with the temple before it was destroyed. They wonder whether it's worth it to keep doing the work. They know God gave them this work to do, but they hesitate as they consider whether the outcome will be worth the effort. We all have work that God gives us to do. While we don't have a temple to rebuild, we do have jobs to do, 
families to care for, children to raise, brothers and sisters in Christ to build up, and people to proclaim the gospel to. The work is hard. It takes time and energy to complete. And we often don't see the fruit of our labor until far off in the future. We can wonder, like the people of Haggai's day, whether the work we're doing is worth the time we're putting into it. In these moments, when we wonder whether our work is worth it, what keeps us going? Why isn't it enough for us just to know that God gave us the work to do? It's because we have a hope deficiency. Our hope deficiency comes from focusing more on the difficulty of the circumstances we find ourselves in than reflecting on the outcome of the work God gave us to do. God provides us hope that the work we do now will have meaning in the future. God provides us hope that he will use our small efforts to accomplish his large plans. God provides us hope that our work today has meaning even if we can't see the result of it yet. Hope looks beyond the moment we're living in to the future. It considers the promises God has made and is confident that they will come true. At this moment in Israel's history, when the task seemed to be too much and the end result seemed pointless, God sent Haggai again to speak to his people. God had three messages for his people in Haggai 2. As we look at each message this morning, we'll focus on four things. What were the circumstances when the message was sent? Who was the message sent to? What was the message? And then what future promises God made to provide the hope to keep going? God spoke through Haggai in a particular setting to a particular audience with a particular message to bring a future hope. The first message from God came in verses 1 through 9, which I'm going to reread. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so... Be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. This is the Lord's declaration. Oh, sorry, Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. For the Lord of armies says this, once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The setting of the first message, God sent Haggai to speak to the people, came on the 21st day of the seventh month, which is almost a month after the people had started the process of rebuilding the temple. 
This was a special day for Israel because it was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This was one of the three annual feasts God commanded his people to gather together at the temple to celebrate. During this feast, the people would move out of their homes into small structures that they built using branches from trees. It was like a week-long camping trip. During this festival, they reflected on how God provided for them during the wilderness wanderings after they left Egypt. While this was a time of rejoicing in God, it was also a frank reminder of the former state of the temple before it was destroyed. They had a visual reminder right in front of them of the current state of the rebuilt temple to compare with the memories of what the temple had been before. And the comparisons weren't favorable. The audience God sent Haggai to was Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest, and the remnant of the people to ask them a series of questions. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? God gets right to the point and doesn't sugarcoat the fact that the temple they're rebuilding doesn't match its former glory. In fact, the rebuilt temple seems like nothing in comparison. It begs the question, what's the point of rebuilding the temple if it's going to be a shadow of its former glory? God's message to his people is, even so, be strong and work. While God agrees that the current temple doesn't compare with the former temple, his message to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people of the land is to be strong and work because he is with them. What's important to God isn't how the temple looks to his people, but whether they'll keep obeying him by continuing their work on it. God meets us where we are. He knew that the people rebuilding the temple had real questions about the value of doing the work. He knows when we struggle, wondering whether the work we're doing is worthwhile. Is it worth it to keep putting in effort at our jobs when we don't get recognized for the good work that we do? Is it worth it to keep disciplining our children over and over again when they keep repeating the same sins over and over again? Is it worth it to keep telling people about Jesus when they respond with disinterest or anger? God's word to the people through Haggai and his word to us today is even people to be strong and work. He was remong and work. When God instructed his people to be strong and work, he was reminding them of times in the past when he was with his people to do the work he'd given them to do. As the Israelites prepared to enter the land God promised to give them, God told Joshua and the people to be strong and courageous and not to be afraid or discouraged. Then God drove out their enemies and provided them the land he promised. God also doesn't ask his people to muster up our own strength to keep working. Our strength comes from knowing that God is with us. Whatever we truly need, God will provide. Whatever opposition we face, God is with us in the midst of it. We need not fear because God is with us. 
<coughs> with God's presence, we'll be able to accomplish the work he's given us to do. But we must trust in him as our source of strength rather than relying on ourselves. Having God's presence and promises empowers God's people to accomplish his purposes. Let me repeat that again. Having God's presence and promises empowers God's people to accomplish his purposes. That was true when God brought his people out of Egypt into the promised land. It was true when he instructed them to rebuild the temple. And it's still true today. Having God with you (coughs) to accomplish a task he's given you means it's both doable and it's worthwhile. When God's Spirit is with us, there is no reason to be afraid of opposition, whether it's real or imagined. Knowing that God is with us helps us persevere in doing the work God has called us to do. That goes for our work at Christ Church Selwood, too. Over the last nine years since the church was planted, there have been both ups and downs. But God has always been present and strengthened us to accomplish his purposes. Where we are today feels like where we are or where we were when we started almost nine years ago. But the work God has given us to do hasn't changed. What is that work? We joyfully exist for the glory of God, the good of God's people, and Christ in the world. The last two years have posed unique challenges for us in carrying out the work God gave us to do. But the need to do the work still remains. I want to encourage you, as I am encouraged myself, that the work God has given us to do is worthwhile and that he is with us to accomplish it. I'm so thankful for all the ways he's provided for us, especially during the last couple of years. He's provided us financial resources to pay Jared and Michael for their service to the church. He's provided us a place to meet and the ability to pay the rent every month. When we learned that we could no longer meet at the community center, he provided us a new place to meet at Selwood Middle School. He's provided us people to serve with setup and takedown, leading in worship, caring for young kids in the nursery, and teaching kids in the K-5 through class. At the same time, we can look back on the things that we've lost. And by that, I'm specifically referring mostly to people. We can miss them and the contributions they made to this church. At the same time, we can ask God to bring the people that he'd have to join with us in doing our work going forward. As I worked on the sermon this last week, one of the really helpful things for me from this passage was a renewed call to the work at Christ Church Selwood. We don't know all the future holds, but God is with us and will strengthen us to do the work that he has for us to do. That work will be worthwhile because it will ultimately bring him glory. Regardless of whatever discouragement each of us has experienced over the last two years, and believe me, that discouragement at times has been very real, God says to us, even so, be strong and work. 
God not only addressed the concerns of his people directly, he provided hope through a promise that the future glory of the temple will surpass anything they'd seen before. In verses 6 and 7, God says, Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. Then in verse 9, God says, The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. In a little while, God will shake everything up. That shaking covers the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land. It will be all-encompassing. Nothing will escape it. All the powers and kingdoms of the world bring all their riches to God because he owns them all. God is going to fix the lack of glory that the rebuilt temple has. He provided hope to the people that are rebuilding the temple that what looks shabby to them will have more glory than the previous temple ever did. The glory that was lacking in the rebuilt temple will be fully brought in by God from all the nations. In the meantime, God required the people to faithfully complete the work to rebuild the temple as he commanded them. Now, we're still waiting a little while longer for this prophecy to be fulfilled at the return of Jesus. But everything God promised through Haggai will happen. Remember that with God, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. So a little while can take some time to arrive. One last word of caution. There is a worldly tendency to look backward in time to recount our own personal triumphs. God reorients us to look forward to the coming days when we'll see his greatest triumph. It's good to remember God's faithfulness in the past. In fact, we won't know God's promises without looking back. But our hope looks forward to the glory days coming in the future that we haven't seen yet. Those are the days when Jesus will return to be acknowledged as the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Those are the days when Jesus will judge all mankind and set every wrong right. Those are the days when there will be no more sorrow or tears or futility. We'll live forever in God's presence in brand new bodies that don't ever break down or get sick. Because God built them for eternity in a new heavens and earth. Because God has graciously saved us through Jesus, we all have work to do now. Much of it may seem to have little value today, but in God's plan, it's all leading toward his eternal glory. So keep on responding to God saving us through Jesus by doing your job, caring for your family, raising your children, building up brothers and sisters in faith, and proclaiming the gospel. Don't grow weary in doing what is good in God's sight. What seems small and despised today will become great and glorious in the future, all for God's glory. At the full revelation of his glory, 
all the nations will bring their riches to God and experience peace in his presence. This is definitely a day to look forward to while we do our work for him each day today. The second message from God through Haggai is in verses 10 through 19. Again, I'm going to reread that for you. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says. Ask the priest for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai asked, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priest answered, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai replied, so is this people, and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands, even what they offer there is defiled. Now from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you, all the work of your hands, with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. From this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced, but from this day on, I will bless you. The setting of the second message God sent Haggai to speak to the people came on the 24th day of the ninth month, which is two months after the first message. This was also a special day because it was the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid as part of the rebuilding effort. This is a turning point for the rebuilding of the temple, and it's a turning point for the people doing the work. This is also the time of year when the seed would have already been planted in preparation for the upcoming grain harvest. The audience God sent Haggai to was the priests, including Joshua the high priest, and the remnant of the people. Haggai asked the priests for rulings on what is clean and unclean. The cleansing power of what is clean is compared to the defiling power of what is unclean. He asked the priests if consecrated meat that's carried in a man's clothes can make other food it touches clean, and the priests answer, no, it can't. He then asked if a person who is unclean, because they touched a dead person, can make other food he or she touches unclean, and the priests answer, yes, they can. The idea here is that uncleanness spreads more easily than cleanness. God then quickly turns to send a message about how he views his people. All the work of their hands and the offerings that they've been making to him, they are all unclean. The people are defiled. All the works of their hands are defiled. And even the sacrificial offerings are defiled. But why? Why did God view his people, their work, and their sacrifices as dirty and defiled? Because they hadn't been seeking God as their first priority. Because they had disobeyed him and left the temple in ruins. The people had forgotten God's instruction that Jared recently preached on in 1 Samuel 15. God desires obedience more than sacrifices. 
Saul's refusal to obey God resulted in God's rejection of him as king. God calls his people to obey him and his instruction rather than trying to gain his favor by making sacrifices. God knows his people's hearts, so he knows whether we are near or far from him. God also knows whether we're obeying him or refusing to obey him based on our actions. The remnant of God's people in the land refused to obey him by leaving the temple in ruins, and it defiled everything they did as a result. But God again provides them hope, even as he recounts their previous failures. In the same way that God told his people in verses 5 and 7 of chapter 1 to think carefully about their ways, he tells them three times here in chapter 2 to think carefully. They are to think carefully about the state they were in before they started rebuilding the temple. Before they started rebuilding, their expectations were constantly being met with disappointment. They went to get a certain amount of grain or wine, but found far less than they expected. And God is clear that the reason for their disappointment was that he struck the work of their hands. He used blight to dry out their crops, mildew to grow fungus on their crops, hail to beat down their crops. He was actively working against them in order to turn them back to himself. As we learned during the sermon on Haggai 1, how we think about God working to ruin the harvest depends on the value we place on God's disciplining work to turn us from our sin back to him. If we think we know better than God and don't need correction, then we'll see God's discipline as mean and hurtful. If we think God knows best and we trust him to guide us in the right way, then we'll see his discipline as instructive and restorative. We'll see the real value of God's discipline is to turn us from the wrong path we were on back to walking with God. God demonstrates his love for his children by providing them the discipline they need to bring them back to him. On the 24th day of the ninth month, the foundation of the temple was laid in obedience to God's command. God makes a future promise of blessing from that day on. The seed that the people have already planted will be blessed. The vine, fig, pomegranate, and olive tree will all produce. God tells the people to think carefully so that they will realize that their turning to him in obedience will result in a turning point of blessing. The blessings the people sought for themselves apart from God but didn't find will now come to them. And they will come because they sought God as their first priority. Now that the people have prioritized God first and are obeying him, not only is he with them, but he will bless them. It will be months before the grain that was sowed can be harvested, but God promises to bless it. It will be even longer until the vine produces grapes and the olive tree produces olives, but God promised to bless them. They can't see the fruit yet, but they have the certainty of God's promise that they will receive it. That brings us to an important question. What do we really want most? Do we want God and what he's planned for our lives? 
Or do we want to try to convince him to give us what we think is best? One of the things I had to come to terms with as I grew in my faith in God is that I had to take God on his own terms. He wasn't going to accept mine. If you really think about it, isn't that the way we want it to be? The God of the universe who knows how everything is going to turn out before it ever starts says he has a plan for us. That plan will work out for, the ben for our benefit and his glory. My own plan is too short-sighted, too self-focused, too finite. I can look back with hindsight on too many things that I thought were necessary for me to have and realize that if God gave me what I thought was best, that it would have been disastrous for me. But that didn't stop me from wanting them at the time. God is gracious to us in that when we look to him as our single source of satisfaction and joy, he provides us the things we need. Our definition of what we need will continually be adjusted by our relationship with God. He'll teach us to let go of worldly desires and to grow in holiness. He'll comfort us in our sorrow, provide us peace in the midst of turmoil, and direct our steps in accomplishing the good works he has for us to do. It's true that getting God on his terms is a source of blessing in life. It's also true that in this sinful world that we'll suffer for our association with him. We have to decide whether we'll take God at his word, whether we'll trust him to deliver on the promises he made in the past about the blessings coming in the future in spite of the difficulties we face in the present. This is the decision we make when we first place our faith in Jesus. We keep confirming this decision over and over again by turning away from sin back to God through repentance and confession. This new way of life is what Jesus died on the cross to give us. The third message from God through Haggai is in verses 20 through 23, which again, I'll reread for us. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration, and make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The setting of the third message, God sent Haggai to speak, is the same as the second message, because it came on the same day as the second message. But this time, the audience is Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. As the governor of Judah, Zerubbabel led the people to obey God in rebuilding the temple. Considering the recent history of leaders in Judah, this was a major victory. For the first time in a long time, a leader of the people was being obedient to God instead of rebelling against him. The message God spoke to Zerubbabel was a restatement of the future promise he made in the first message of this chapter, chapter 2. God is going to shake the heavens and the earth 
but the shaking takes on a different focus as God speaks to the governor of Judah. In the first message, God will shake the heavens and earth to bring treasure from all the nations to fill the temple with glory. In this third message, God will shake the heavens and earth to overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of Gentile kingdoms. God will also disrupt the military power of these kingdoms by overturning chariots and their riders. When the horses and riders fall, it will be because they destroy each other. God has worked in this way before. When he drowned the horses and chariots of the Egyptians as they followed Israel through the Red Sea, and when he caused the Midianites to destroy each other during the time Gideon judged Israel. But while this overturning was limited to specific enemies of Israel at particular points in time, this promise shaking will be comprehensive. All the royal thrones and Gentile kingdoms will be overturned by God. So what does this mean for Zerubbabel? God's words of a future promise to him are comforting, and that he calls Zerubbabel his servant and promises to keep him close until the day all the rulers are shaken by using the picture of a signet ring. A signet ring was used by rulers to stamp their documents as an authenticating mark. Because it was a sign of authenticity, that ruler had made the decree, it was kept close to the ruler. It could be worn as a ring on the ruler's hand or as a necklace around the ruler's neck to keep it from getting into the wrong hands and being misused. When God said to Zerubbabel that he will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, he is telling him that he has accepted him and will keep him in his presence now and into the future, just like a ruler does with his signet ring. God will protect Zerubbabel as one of his precious children from that day on. This statement from God using the picture of a signet ring carries huge implications for Zerubbabel because of his grandfather, Jeconiah. Jeconiah was a king in Judah before the exile who refused to obey God. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God told Jeconiah in Jeremiah 22:24 that, though you, Coniah, which is a shortening of Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you from it. A few verses later, God told Jeconiah that none of his descendants will succeed in sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Can you imagine the weight Zerubbabel carried knowing of God's curse on his grandfather and how it would impact him? Can you imagine the relief he experienced from God reversing that curse and telling Zerubbabel that he has chosen him and will keep him close like a signet ring? Zerubbabel is a picture of how God saves people through the gospel. He's under the curse of his ancestors' sin and disobedience. He sinned against God himself by disobeying him so that all his works are defiled. God chooses him, saves him, and makes him his servant. As a result, Zerubbabel turns from his sin, obeys God, and leads others to obey him too. Now that God was blessing his people, how far would that blessing go in regards to Judah having a king and ruling themselves instead of being subjects in the Persian Empire? Should Zerubbabel expect that he would be king over Judah in his lifetime? 
God's promise to Zerubbabel isn't about ruling now. It's about being kept close to God now and into the future. When the day of shaking comes, God will keep Zerubbabel, his servant, with him. He will be with God on the day when God shakes the heavens and earth and overturns all the leaders of the world. Zerubbabel will see that day when it comes in spite of the failures of his grandfather. God provides us similar hope when he saves us through Jesus. God has chosen us to be his people, and we are his servants. When Jesus returns, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We will live eternally in God's presence as his servants, and sin and sorrow will be no more. We don't know when that day is coming, but we can be certain that no matter how far into the future it may be, we'll all see that day when it comes. In the meantime, God has given us work to do and the strength to do it. God calls us to love and obey him, to seek first his kingdom and righteousness, to make him our first priority and first love. And on the days when we're discouraged, on the days that we wonder whether it's worthwhile, we can be reminded of the future promises God makes to his people. We can be reminded of God's word to us to be strong and work with the strength God provides us. God promised future hope to his people during the time of Haggai. Jesus came to begin fulfilling those promises. The day of shaking the heavens and the earth will ultimately come when Jesus returns. Zerubbabel reversed the curse of his grandfather through his obedience to God. But Jesus reversed the curse of sin on all humanity through his death on the cross. Jesus obeyed every word of God, completed every task God gave him to do, and pointed forward to the day when, God, when he would return to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is our hope today and into eternity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honesty and directness of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness and goodness to us, Father, in showing us our sin and our need. And we thank you that in the midst of that, you make promises about our future as we turn from our sin and obey you. Father, we thank you that through your son, Jesus, we are saved from our sin. We thank you that through him, the day of shaking is coming. All the heavens and earth, all the dry land and sea will be shaken when your son returns. And we ask, Lord, according to your gracious provision, that that day would come sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, Father, we ask that you would strengthen us to do the work that you've given us to do, that you would help us to keep and maintain a right perspective about that work. Lord, may we not despise it, but may we see its value as we do it and as it goes into the future to bring you glory and honor and praise. Lord, we thank you so much for your mercy to us. We thank you for the encouragement of your word, and we thank you that it points us to your son, Jesus. We rejoice in you in his name. Amen.